Hey there, and welcome to a Clean Bill of Wealth podcast. I'm your host, Galen Nuttall. Thanks for joining me today. This is a podcast where I cover topics of importance for Canadian physicians, sometimes financial and sometimes other aspects of life like health and well-being and relationships and side hustles. And if you haven't already, be sure to go to galenhelpsdocs.com to join the free financial literacy challenge for Canadian physicians. That's at G-A-L-E-N helpsdocs.com. Be sure to check it out. And if you've already done it, be sure to fill out the form at the end where you can claim your free prize after having completed the modules. That's a place online where I answer a lot of the top questions I get behind closed doors around financial planning for physicians. I cover a lot of the misconceptions and mistakes that I see people making. So be sure to check that out. And now on with the show. All right, welcome everyone to this episode of a Clean Bill of Wealth podcast. I am your host, Galen Nuttall, and today I am joined by Dr. Michelle Hulsher, who is a behavioral scientist at BeWorks. And uh, we met at a conference a couple of years ago, and I don't know if I ever told you this, but it was a conference all around, all around financial planning, and I wasn't really looking forward to it, to be honest, because a lot of times those can be really dry and like very heavy on you know, strategies and, 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 and numbers, but the theme was like behavioral economics and it was very much into the behavior of individuals. So I was super excited to see that on the agenda. And I found your talk very fascinating. It's a subject I'm very fascinated by. So thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> I'm pleased to be here. Yeah, thank you. And I mean, it's just, um, I, I find this area just so fascinating and I can talk about it all day, but I definitely want to be like, um, get to the root of a couple different things that I'm very, I find very interesting in how it pertains to financial planning. And so maybe to get it started, it would be if you could give me just or give us a, a big picture view of, you know, what, what does it entail to be a uh, behavioral scientist with the area of expertise of behavioral economics? Like, what does that mean? How do you spend your time? Like, what, what kinds of things are you up to? Yeah, great question. So behavioral economics is coming out of, of course, an academic kind of tradition. And it's kind of funny because I went through psychology at the University of Toronto. I was completing a dissertation there. And, you know, many years of kind of being involved in, in that type of academic scholarship. And yet I never heard of behavioral economics. It was actually only when I left academia and kind of went into a more of a consulting gig out of school that that's where I learned that there's actually this applied discipline where you're taking insights about psychology, how people make decisions and applying them in the context of business challenges, um, you know, things like, you know, how do you get people to save more? Or how do you get people to, to understand that, you know, they they need to think about risk and they need to make sure that they have the right type of insurance or, you know, they need to work and get um, a will set up, for instance. So uh, that's what really interested me. And the day-to-day of, of this kind of work is, I guess, it's eclectic, it's diverse, but it all boils down to human behavior. So I find that it's an exercise in pattern recognition where I can work in many industry challenges mm-hmm. um, and see similar types of human behavioral patterns. So I can tell stories about things I've learned by studying people who make decisions about, you know, medical decision making, Mm. how that might even match up with things that we're seeing when people make decisions about their finances. So I think that's something that's quite interesting. No, and I I like, um, no, I find it interesting that you didn't, you kind of found your way into this, like not necessarily while you were 
in the trenches of academia, but actually when you left it. So that's very interesting. And I feel like it's something that's really taking off. That's the sense I get around, you know, when I'm going to conferences, when I'm, um, you know, looking up, um, you know, trainings I'm doing, you know, I just see more of it popping up, which I'm very um, happy to see because early on, uh, when I became an advisor, I was, I was very interested in looking at what are the things that I can help clients control that will have the biggest impact on success. And so there's things that I cannot control, which is like short-term changes in the market if someone's invested in the market. Like I have zero control over what company is going to go up or down, but I can help people manage their behavior. And early on, I saw that as maybe a big win. And that's a big part of what I promote to people is like figuring out how much you need to put away and then putting a structure in place that you're putting it away. And um, one of the things I find fascinating is some of the result, the findings around connecting to the future self. Mm-hmm. And also sort of like the gamification of the intangible quality of putting money away. And I know when I saw you speak, you spoke a bit to that. Um, And I didn't warn you we're going to talk about the connection to the future self. just kind of popped into my head. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I find that one fascinating because something I read was that they did like brain scans on people. And they said, think about future you and think about a stranger. And basically the same area lit up, which to me is like, uh uh-oh, like (laughs) we got to do something about this. So, I mean, if you could just kind of walk us through what the uh, the findings are and like what what we can do about it. Definitely. So um, to take a step back... What people need to know is that we have predictable rules of thumb we use when we make decisions across every domain in our life. And those are often really helpful, uh, but it can mean that sometimes we're biased. And therefore, you know, we're going to come across things like the present bias. That's why the future self is hard to envision. And that's why we're not willing to do things now to help that person in the future who exactly, as you said, is a stranger to us. You know, if we were to imagine things that were to happen to us, even a week from now, it's not a first person narrative. It's like you're imagining it's someone completely other than than yourself. Um, and what that means is that, you know, you can't, you can't without great difficulty get people to start saving. And if they do save, they feel like just because they've started saving that that's enough and they don't need to be generous savers, for instance. So we've done research looking at uh, how do you help people to set up the right type of savings infrastructure for themselves through an app. And we, we read a lot of the literature and there's you know certainly documented in the literature that people should look at. It's like an aged morphed face. <laughs> so you can like input your photo and it'll age your your picture you're looking at yourself and then you're making the decision of how much off of your you know your weekly pay your monthly pay is going to get moved into savings and you're going to be more generous if you've looked at that aged face and we thought to ourselves well i wonder if there are other ways to do it do we need to have people looking at an aged face maybe it's not as difficult as all that. Maybe we don't need a technology platform to support that. Mm. Maybe there's something you can do individually, uh, such as journaling or writing a letter to the future self. So those are important activities. Um, and the key is to make sure you ask yourself the right questions. So it isn't just you know imagining what it will be like, but it's actually trying to see the places where you're going to be a similar person. Because I think we're very good at making ourselves imagine will be different 
that will value different things will be happy with with different things. Maybe that will be happy that with less than what we've got now. Mm. So building continuity through these kinds of activities is, I think, the, the key to helping us be more generous uh, in addition to, you know, starting those behaviors that are important. And you, you mentioned, of course, also uh, the gold coin study. So this is one that was completed by a colleague of ours, Dan Ariely, co-founder of BEWorks. Um, so he was looking to see, you know, what is it about people's decision-making and their thinking about, about saving that maybe gets in the way of, of actually being able to put money away. And he looked particularly at people who are not able to predict week to week how much they will have to save mm-hmm. because they are, you know, working in almost like a gig economy. They're not sure like what it's going to amount to each week. So they can't rely on any sort of pre-commitment, you know, that it's an automatic contribution that's happening. And instead, it's got to be a weekly decision that they make. They have to sit down and they have to actually ask themselves, how much should I save? And so they they knew that they had access to people's smartphones. This is how a lot of people are doing transacting. Uh, it was in Africa. And so they thought, let's think if we can change the way the app works so that it's not just a way of paying, but it's a way of saving. And he tested a bunch of different types of, you know, SMS messages that people would receive. Some of them focused on, you know, there's a match if you donate or if you if you save, we will match what you have put into the the account. And that's pretty typical. We expect people will do it because they want to take advantage of that reward. Uh, Other conditions were kind of like a guilt trip. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's as if the the SMS has come to people from their their children, you know, mommy, daddy, don't forget to save. Um, So they, they tested to see if that would work. And they also had this very quirky gold coin condition, which was, you know, something that went along with this digital kind of experience. It was actually a physical coin the size of the palm of your hand. It was, you know, a plastic disc that's painted to look as if it's gold. And people would simply scratch off for every week that they save around the edges of the coin. They would just scratch off that, yep, they did save. So they could see over time um, how many times they've managed to put some money away. So I don't know if it is, you know, just a matter of seeing that they've got a you know a track record that they don't want to break. It's a streak they don't want to break, or maybe it's about the fact that they've made the invisible visible, and they've made it something that's a device within the family. So it's not just them who, who are doing the saving, but it's like people around the table, the family sees you know, this is the effort that we've gone to. Uh, so something about that tangibility, I think, is quite important. And you know, I think w- that kind of example really underlines the importance of behavioral economics because it's fake money. It's Mm. not costing you anything. And yet people are saving far more than that traditional condition where, you know, you've got maybe an employer who's saying, I'll pitch in some money for your retirement. Um, Yeah. And in that study, the gold coin, like of those options of the text message mm-hmm. reminder or the matching, the gold coin was the winner, right? Like the people gold, saved more? Yeah, gold coin was definitely the, the winner. People saved a lot more. <laughs> yeah, I find that yeah. so fascinating. And I love what you said about, you know, the um, present bias, because I'm very fascinated by different um, cognitive biases and always looking for those in myself and trying to find ways to help 
encounter them in the work that I do. And the whole idea of connection to future self, I mean, one of the things I do with clients is I do have them visualize a future, like really be present to it. Like, where are you going to be? What are you going to be doing? What does it feel like? What does it smell like? You know, what do you see to your left, your right? Give it a specific name that we can revisit every time we're planning. And um, I, I enjoy that a lot because I, I feel like it is this the taking a step back and really looking at it. Now, what you said about people and their future selves or, or convincing themselves that they'll be content with less or somehow life is going to change. Mm-hmm. I definitely have seen this a lot where someone who's like an incredibly active, busy person in, in, in their life around work and friends and kids and everything will say, oh, yeah, when I retire, I'm just going to slow down. I'm not going to do much. I'm just going to sit around sort of thing. And I'll say, you know, I'll kind of look at that and say, is there any um, evidence that that's what you're going to do? Yeah. <laughs> because right now you can't like I've literally sat with people who can barely sit still long enough to be in a meeting who say, no, when I retire, life will be different. I'm going to sit around. I'm not going to go places. I'm not going to do much. And it's like I, if I just took it at face value, maybe I'd put together a plan for them where that would be mm-hmm. enough. But I'm also yeah. looking at is this a reasonable expectation of the future for them? And in this case, I don't think it was. So we worked on that a little bit. Like, do you really think you're going to change that much? Mm-hmm. to be content with less. And so it's an important part of the conversation. That's very interesting. I think it also taps into, you know, this atypicality neglect that people have lots of big words there, but really what it <laughs> means is that we we focus on what has been typical for us and that is what we expect will persist. And we don't put any attention into the things that could go wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's work with, um, you know, expenses and budgeting that comes from Chuck Howard. Uh, he has gone through and studied at, at UBC. And he looks at, you know, when people are considering credit and, you know, they're getting a credit card, what do they think their spending behaviors will be like? And he's found this rampant atypicality neglect where people assume that they're not going to use the card a whole lot. Um, you know, when it comes to budgeting on a, a weekly or a monthly basis, you know, they're focused on those usual expenses like mm-hmm. groceries and they're not expecting that there's going to be a vet bill or that someone's dropping by for dinner and they didn't, you know, they didn't expect that to happen. And so something that we we recommend is that, you know, people, they do a pre-mortem and they actually assume that there will be these atypicalities and they they do put attention onto them uh, and build them into the the financial plans that they've got. Um, that way they're they're taken, you know, taken account of. And, you know, in those situations where people maybe worry or expect that they will get off track uh, to build a plan to get back on track, as opposed to just assuming that, you know, you'll somehow be able to, to summon the willpower to do that in the moment. Oh, for sure. And that's definitely common for me when it comes to budgeting. I mean, even my wife and I, before we became, or before I became an advisor, our advisor asked us to go budget. Mm -hmm. We went, we budgeted, we said, we're going to have this much left over every month. But then the next month we needed new snow tires. And so we're like, never mind, we don't have that left over. And then the next month something else happened. And we said, never mind, we don't have that. So at the end of the day, we really, we just stopped working with the planner because we're like, we might as well just stop here because our budget never uh, persists. Like there's always these, these anomalies. And um, so I've definitely taken a different approach to budgeting since then of to see what works for different, like different people have different personalities when it comes to that. Most of my clients just say, look, tell me what I need to put away to be where I want to be. And like, let me do what I want with the rest. And that works with, I'd say the vast majority of my clients where 
you know, some people, yes, they want to sit down and they want to put it all in an Excel spreadsheet, but other people say, look, tell me how much I have to put away. Let's set that up to be an automatic thing. And then I'll just do what I need to do with the rest of it. And that's usually where I end up with people. Yeah, sounds uh, about about right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's somewhat. So I'm glad I've gotten there because it was really one of my first clients where they're like, "Hey, we don't really do budgeting." And I've, I I find and I could be way off here, but I find that if someone isn't a budgeter when I meet them, they're not likely going to become one, at least not consistently, unless there's some real like some real tangible way of doing it differently or some real motivation to do it. Because what I find is that. And and the other last thing I'll say about budgeting is like what I find is a lot of people think they can't start planning until they have their budget figured out. Mm -hmm. But I meet people for whom it takes years to get a budget figured out and they like, and then they just put off planning and because they think they have to have this thing, excuse me, ready before they can do it. And I'm always like, don't wait until you have a budget figured out because that might take forever. Yeah, no, I think that's true, actually, of a lot of different um, behavioral challenges that I've worked on where there's an assumption that people need to kind of have the motivation or they have to have the bare minimum to get started. And I think an interesting finding out of, out of, you know, psychology is really that often if you can just get that first little tiny step to happen, the motivation comes from that. Even if it never existed in the first place, people have this desire to feel like their, you know, their behavior represents who they are and what they value. So if you get that first step started, then things will go from there, I think, and the motivation builds. That's definitely what I've experienced for sure. Like I will oftentimes tell people start somewhere and we'll flex. I call it flexing the muscle, like flexing that savings muscle, like start somewhere. And then over time you'll get used to it. We'll increase it. And it, it may not, um, I don't know. It may not make perfect mathematics sense, but it just seems to start working out for people as we start doing it. Then they revisit it. How much closer are we to our goal now than we were before? You know, how much more do we need to put away to get to that goal? And it just builds. Um, And I mean, that's that's been my approach. Um, Maybe not in my first couple of years because I was following a bit more of a standardized, you got a budget, then you got to do this. Now I'm much more flexible around people's path to just saving the right way and, you know, protecting against what can go wrong. Mm -hmm. And one thing I'd love to know is like how, what got you personally interested in um, behavioral economics? Like you, you said that you kind of, stumbled into it but like you've certainly spent a lot of time on it like yes i imagine there's got to be a level of personal connection or passion going on there to spend so much time and effort um to really become an expert in this field yeah so i started off uh, in grad school studying something that you know reflecting back on it was pretty abstract uh, i was looking at how people reason through logical syllogisms so three-part mm-hmm. logical arguments and looking to see if you know what people believe about the world maybe makes it difficult for them to see the logical structure of an argument. Very (laughs) (laughs) non-applicable. And I knew while I was in grad school that I really wanted to solve real-world problems. So I started to do kind of some consulting on the side while I was in school. I looked at all sorts of stuff, like how people interact with industrial design products and how they learn to use things and how they relate to artwork. And... Then, out of school, I, I landed a job with a consulting agency in Toronto, little one, uh, that do governance consulting within the pension industry. Hmm. And all of a sudden, I was you know, helping to rethink how investment committees or boards operate. What are the ways that they govern and make decisions? And there was a real interest from, from those clients of mine, like, what are the biases that maybe are blocking the decision-making amongst group members? And so that's where I learned about behavioral economics. And at the same time, I felt like, 
you know, I was looking for a place where I could do the full scientific method. So not Mm -hmm. just, you know, here are some insights, but I also really wanted to find a place where I could do experiments and testing. Because that's really, I think, partly what is neglected when we talk about behavioral economics. It's not just the ideas, but also let's have a framework where we can test hypotheses and see if we're right or wrong. Um, So lots of opportunities to run little experiments in business is what attracted me to to BeWorks. And that's what I, I am doing much of the time is helping to think about, you know, how do we test something like, you know, this strategy for getting people to save more or this approach to, you know, having people think about the climate and mm. make changes to their, you know, to their homes. So we work in lots of different industries, but yeah, that's, that's sort of the path that I took is desire to solve problems in the real world. <laughs> Yeah, no, I find that very interesting because the economics in general, I feel like, so if you just take the study of economics, I feel Mm -hmm. like it's very distant from what I call the boots on the ground application. Yes. And so like I was part of a group of people uh, a couple of years ago, I went to a conference and a group of people were very interested in economics and I was pretty new as an advisor, I think maybe a year and a half in. Mm -hmm. So I was really very much a student and really devouring a lot of materials. And I said, I'm going to join this group. Well, the first thing they had us do or wanted to do. And so I was working with like, just as an example, um, one of the people in there was like a PhD economist at Oxford University sort of thing. And they're like, okay, for our first book club meeting, and I don't mean to pick on this author or the book or anything, but it was like, we're going to read Thomas Piketty's uh, Capitalism in the 21st Century. And this is like a 650-page book, I think. Mm-hmm. And I picked it up and I read the first few pages. And I was like, this um, you know, is not what I'm looking for because I was very much interested in how people were, um, you know, how to, how to help people do things in their lives that would help them. Mm-hmm. Most of the people in the group were very much on a policy level of like, how can yeah. we get governments to do things to build more sustainable economies? And I love that they're doing that. Like, that's awesome. But like, I'm sitting there and I didn't get far enough into the book. So maybe it's a different book than I think it is. I just saw like the Netflix special based on the book, which, <laughs> which is actually pretty fascinating. Um, but I remember just reading it and being like, oh, if I can't apply this to someone's life, I'm going to have a real hard time going through this. Because I, I, it's hard for me to get excited about numbers or concepts unless I can think of a specific person or group of people that I can help like have a better life because they're implementing it. So I can definitely relate to that, like the theoretical versus the practical. So it's pretty cool yeah. how you made that shift. Yeah. Yeah. It's been quite gratifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To see those, those real life results and testing. And I mean, and I think it's huge. Like I just think there's so much you know, even around um, financial literacy uh, coming into schools now, I'm excited about it, but I'm also looking at some of the studies that have come out of financial literacy and the downstream impact to actual real life changes mm-hmm. in people's um, behavior. And I haven't seen anything yet that's shown, okay, financial literacy actually impacts people's behavior because I don't think that information is really going to change that. And so I'm hoping it's the first step towards more of a behavioral approach because uh, my kids are at that age now that I'm teaching right. them personally financial literacy. But like to understand the difference between a stock and a bond is not that important to me for a child. It's more of how can I fight the forces of consumerism in my life that's trying to convince me all day long to spend money I have right now on something that's going to change my life now rather than save for the future. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. I think that oftentimes, you know, this assumption that more information just you know it's the better type of information at the right time is going to be the the game changer for people but 
yeah, there's so much evidence that says that it doesn't really convert into behavior change. Um, there are other, you know, traditional approaches too, like this, this view that people will do it for the money or people will do it to avoid the penalty. And, you know, that's really what most organizations are offering as the instruments of change. And they just don't actually pan out. Um, that's why I think people need to start exploring behavioral economics. And as much as in the work I do, it's more macro. So let's think about how, you know, we're helping large groups of people. I do think that there are insights that you can put into place individually in your life that can make it so that you're nudging yourself. Mm. Something really cool that comes out of the research is that even when people know they're being nudged, it still has the impact. Mm. So it's not as if it's a hidden thing that you just, you know, that's a hidden kind of quirk in right. the architecture. Instead, it, yeah, it has this effect because it's acting on those naturally occurring rules of thumb that we, we rely on most of the time. Interesting. So it sounds like it's more like at the source mm-hmm. of what motivates us or what moves us, like getting closer to that core is going to have greater impact. Yeah, exactly. Very neat. And one of the things I'm interested in um, finding out is like, so now that we're talking about like the way I put it, boots on the ground or real life yeah. applications. I mean, what do you think are some steps like for someone who's listening and wondering yes. how can I actually do something that's going to make a difference in my life? Or like, I know I'm not, um, you know, saving enough. And, you know, um, so I put together a financial literacy course for physicians and I was really looking at the, and I know it's a lot of information and I say that very early on, like this is information <laughs> that, that may or may not change the way you do things. But one of the first things yeah. I have people do is, take some time to figure out what has worked in the past for them to achieve something and like try to model that again in their life. But I'd love to hear from you, like what tangible, um, you know, sorts of things people can be doing. Yeah. Well, I think um, one lesson that we've learned is that pre-commitment is extremely valuable. Um, There's the save more tomorrow program that you probably have heard of, but basically people before they have money that lands in their laps from, you know, a salary increase or a bonus, they, they kind of make a decision in a cold state about how that money is going to be allocated. Um, that's one form of pre-commitment. Um, but there are so many others, right, where you can make a decision for your future self and you're using the fact that the future self feels like a stranger to get that future self, like maybe next week to do things that feel super difficult right now. Um, an example could be, you know, write down the questions that you're going to want to have a conversation about with your advisor and give that advisor the questions so that you're pre-committing to that conversation, to that next meeting. Um, Otherwise, you know, in a week or in two weeks, it will be really easy to turn away from having that conversation. So that could be, you know, one one thing that I would recommend is is trying to use pre-commitment wherever you can. I think another, again, goes back to this idea of the future self and trying to like build that sense of continuity between who you are now and who you will be way into the future so that that way uh, you're extra generous with the saving and with the decisions that you make at this moment, uh, keeping in mind that, you know, you're really not going to be that different when you're older. And I think a third thing I would have on the list is to distinguish between a habit and the need to have grit. 
Now we've done research in actually it's with Parkinson's patients. So there there's treatment that is available uh, that can make sure that or you know can sort of improve the trajectory uh, of the disease. It can actually even prevent some worst case outcomes, hopefully. The only issue is that patients need to take this treatment for extremely long periods of time, 10 to 20 years. And when they are, you know, taking the treatment, it doesn't actually feel different in the moment. If they go off of the treatment, they don't have any sort of increase in symptoms that would make them want to go back on track. And uh, something that we learned in that research is that you need to instill grit in yourself so that when things happen in your life, like your doctor, you know, retires or you move to a new place and have to establish that, you know, that new relationship with the provider or when your your main caregiver, you know, is no longer uh, with you, you have to then take over that part of your own care. These things can get in the way. And if you are relying on just a habit of taking a pill, um, you know, going through the, the motions of the treatment, you don't have the sort of so the actual buy-in um, and the will to, to reestablish the, the pattern that's so important to the treatment. Mm-hmm. And so what we did there is we built out a strategy where people committed and, you know, sort of, I suppose invested meaning into those day-to-day actions. So on the, you know, the actual pill bottle, they had a little place where they could put a pledge, like I'm taking this pill uh, every day so that, you know, in 10 to 20 years, this is what my life's going to be like. And every time they would end up uh, refilling the prescription, there would be a place on the bottle where they would, you know, write the pledge. And maybe it would be a slightly different pledge every time. But it was a way for them to see that the day-to-day behaviors are connected to something bigger. And mm. you know, they're able to be goal-oriented in the way that they are actually navigating. And it means that when things go off the rails uh, and the habit breaks down, that they are able to actually get back in there and get back on track. And I think you know, very similar insights could be applied if we think about financial decision-making because very often it's, you know, day-to-day behaviors that are going yes. to add up to being, you know, something that helps with our goals or hurts our goals. And I think that people often forget their reasons why. They forget their reasons why they made decisions. And when it comes to, you know, revisiting things, you know, they, they go with the heuristics instead of maybe mm-hmm. what was actually a very, very well-reasoned choice. So I think we need to figure out how to connect the day-to-day with the broader goals that we have. No, that, that idea of the pledge I find very fascinating and, and exactly that of like, you've got these patients who are really going to benefit from this 10, 20 year long treatment, but in the short term, they're not seeing any difference of yeah. whether they skip it or do it or not. And it reminds me of two things. One is I used to be a medical transcriptionist for a, sh- a shoulder surgeon. So a lot of people may not know this about me, but when I lived in Venezuela, I was doing medical transcription and um, I could type like 120 words a minute or something like that. And it was a doctor who was doing shoulder surgery and he would come in and he would have people, you know, undergo this very, you know, intense surgery to fix their shoulders, usually in their 60s, 70s or beyond. And he'd say like, none of this will be worth anything if you don't keep up your stretches or if you don't keep up, you know, these activities that you need to keep up. And invariably, I don't know what percentage in the end, but invariably I would be typing out notes, 
you know, so-and-so got their shoulder surgery fast forward, you know, in the first meeting, their range of motion is great. Six months later, their range of motion is back to where it was pre-surgery. And so I do remember him getting to the point where he was really getting picky with people of you're going to have to do some pre-work to establish this habit before we do the surgery and then continue it after. And if he felt like people were not going to continue it, then he would really discourage them from doing it because he's like, if you're going to be back to the same spot in six months, there's no point in me taking apart your shoulder. Um, But I remember being fascinating. Like they've gone through this surgery, but they won't do these stretches. But on the other hand, like, I don't stretch either. <laughs> and like every time I go to physio, my physiotherapist is like, you know, if you just stretch, you wouldn't end up here again. And I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> but then I just keep doing it. <laughs> no, I like that idea though of the pre-work and like build the habit first. Yep. So there's definitely, you know, lots of things that we can take away from from that story and from from the research I shared too, I think. Yeah, for sure. And and I have a I have a daily habit tracker that I use to keep my like, especially for things in my life that I really don't want to do or so I break it down to daily actions. And one yes. of the things I read every morning is a saying that says, enough stones will eventually change the course of any river. And the idea being that each day I'm moving one stone and it's like yeah. I'm not gonna see the river move in one day, but I am gonna see a stone or two move. And it helps me, okay, gotta do, gotta keep track of these things in the morning and the evening, like gotta see if I did the things or not. And um that definitely helps me like, you know, see my way through. So that was one thing I, that it reminded me when you mentioned the pledge. Very cool. I think I'll add one more thing to the yeah, list yeah. of what I would recommend to people. So I think we all need to recognize that we do have these, you know, these heuristics, these shortcuts that we use and we're human. That's just normal. That's the way we operate. And sometimes I think we give ourselves a really hard time because of these things. Instead of mm-hmm. recognizing that they're predictable, they will happen. And that we just need to plan that they will happen and allow them to happen. And, you know, we did research looking at the relationship between uh, clients and advisors. And, you know, that experience of going through and getting a financial plan prepared. And one thing that we found is that people, after they've received the financial plan, so you've had that meeting, you've presented it, you worked through all the details to get it to that sort of that state where, you know, now we can take off and, and take action. People want to take a vacation. They want to take a break. They feel they've earned it. They satisfy. And so instead of on the cusp of being able to take action... They don't. They take a break. They don't want to have a meeting next week because they feel that they've earned a little bit of breathing room. And the thing is, people then feel guilty, but it's only it's only human. That's how we are. And so I think, you know, recognizing that, let's build it into the cadence of how we actually go about planning and know that we're going to take a vacation yeah (laughs) thanks we've earned it after that that initial that initial stage is over that's fascinating and i I imagine that ties into that research around like if someone just gave to charity they're more likely to like treat themselves to something sweet because they've like they've earned it there's like that is super fascinating because i've seen that time and time again with uh clients where we will work very hard to get to that first milestone of we've got the plan yep here's the next step of actually taking the action. And that is where a lot of people drop off. Like 
a lot of people. And so what you're telling me is definitely making me reflect on those, the cadence of those meetings or actually just allowing for it. Like you've done, because it is like in the beginning, it's like, you need to send me some statements and maybe I need to talk to the accountant. And like, there's a lot of activity yeah. and a lot of work on my end. And then I can, we come out with this plan that's going to work if they implement it. And a lot of people, that's when things grind to a halt. And it probably is that like, Oh, I'm going to celebrate now. Like let's, we don't need to meet again. Like we're good. We've celebrated. And, and, and it's actually like, they haven't taken the real action yet to kind of put together the, the, the instruction manual, but we haven't actually started putting together the plan. So yeah. that's very interesting. Yeah. And um, last thing I was going to say around the pre-commitments is I always use the story of Ulysses and the sirens around how Ulysses was going by the Island of the sirens. And he had his crewmates tie him to the mast because he wanted to hear the siren song and survive and not jump off the boat and drown or whatever happens. And um, I use that a lot with um, a pre-commitment document that I use with my clients around invest investing. So investment policy statement, yeah. it's a pretty, I make it like about a two page document, but I um, make it such that we're agreeing to what we're going to do mm -hmm. around investing how we're not going to react to short-term changes in the market. And then I create a spot where every year for at least 10 years, they sign off on a yearly um, um, you know, commitment. We're going to stick mm -hmm. to this. We're going to stick to this. And the only reason we change the plan is if something has changed in their lives, not if anything external, just like something that's actually happening to them. And I love it because as I review them on a yearly basis, people really see that continuity and it really, I feel it really helps them um, mm -hmm. stick to the plan. And 2020 was a pretty good, um, in my mind, uh, litmus test of like my clients sticking to the plan, despite the media, you know, saying that, you know, the, Oh gosh, things are terrible. You should cash out your investments or whatever. Um, I said, no, let's go back to this document that we put into place. Like what you said in like cold state, like when nothing is, nothing's really happening. We're just deciding on a course of action and then just pulling it out when we need it. And I, I love it. Like it's definitely helped me a lot. I think it's partly that you've planned for the, things that are unexpected. So when the unexpected happens, it's not such a shock because you've already, you know, had that type of conversation anticipating that it, that it could be realistic that it would happen. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's a really good point because it, so I became an advisor in 2013. And so the 2008, 2009 crash was like, you know, five-ish years in the past mm -hmm. and every year it would get farther in the past, you know, on the yeah like if a 10 year projection, it would just get farther back and farther back. And I'd always say to people like, we're not done with these. Like, it's not like that was the last one. Like we're yeah. going to have more, especially if I'm working with someone who's in their thirties or forties, I'm like, you're going to see a lot of these over the course of your lifetime. And who knows what the cause will be. The cause may change every time. It may be geopolitical. It may be pandemic. It may be who knows uh, environmental. They're going to keep happening. And I think that's part of what helped is I wasn't sugarcoating it. Like those things are gone. Like, no, they're going to happen again, but we need to be prepared before they happen. Um, because pretending they don't happen wouldn't have done anyone any, yeah. any sir, or that I can predict them consistently or, you know, protect, you know, it's just like, let's control what we can control um, yes. to make a difference. Yeah. Awesome. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I am going to turn off the live, but I am going to keep recording because I do have a few more questions for you. Yeah, but thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A Clean Bill of Wealth. I really appreciate oh, it. My pleasure. Hey there. Thank you so much for having listened to this episode. I'm honored that you took time out of your busy day to listen to this, or maybe you're multitasking like I do when I'm driving or doing yard work and listening to podcasts. So I hope you got a lot out of it. As always, feel free to check out the free financial literacy challenge for Canadian physicians that I have put together. You can hop on over to galenhelpstocks.com to check that out. G-A-L-E-N 
helpsdocs.com. And if you've already taken it, be sure to fill out the form at the end so you can claim your free prize. That's a place where I cover a lot of the misconceptions around financial planning for Canadian physicians, and then also cover a lot of the top topics and questions I get asked behind closed doors by doctors who want to understand more what they should be doing for retirement and how to manage their corporation. So perfect. Feel free to check that out. Again, thank you so much for having joined me and take care.